Welcome to the podcast, Vaginas and Vertebrae, where two doctors talk all about down there topics that seem to be overlooked. Whether it be mindset, body image, self-love, or medical questions, we dive deep into all aspects of being female. Dr. Madeline is a chiropractor who is on a mission to inspire women to reconnect to their bodies and reclaim their power. Dr. Kaylee is a pelvic floor physical therapist, spreading the truth that your vagina is magical. And as a woman, you deserve to rid of all the shame, guilt, and fear, limiting you from stepping into your boss bitch self. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. Thank you so much for your support of our podcast, Vaginas and Vertebrae. Please understand that all of the information, whether it be by Dr. Kaylee, Dr. Madeline, or our guest, is all solely based on personal and professional opinion. Nothing that we say or give information on should be utilized in place of any medical advice that has been given to you. If you are experiencing any medical symptoms, signs of issue or dysfunction, please make sure that you follow up with your physician and make sure you are following all of the plans of care. We are not saying that we have a physician-patient relationship with any of our listeners, so therefore we do not have any liability with what you do with the information that you gain from this podcast. Thank you so much again for listening, and we're super excited that you were just so chill, and you're ready to learn, and you're ready to listen to the way that we feel about what's going on in women's health care. Awesome. Here we are again for another episode of Vaginas and Vertebrae. I actually said it right because y'all, I've been sleeping a little bit better, which is super exciting. Um, So we're here with someone that I was just telling previously, I starstruck again. I'm so incredibly excited to have Lily Nichols on our podcast, who is a registered dietitian nutritionist and a diabetes educator, correct? Did I say that correctly? Mm -hmm certified diabetes educator, which is a beautiful thing right now because we all know the epidemic of diabetes and all of the things that go on with that. So we are super excited. I am Dr. Kaylee. I'm Dr. Madeline. (laughs) And we have Lily Nichols. And our first question is always the same, Lily. I want you to introduce yourself. Tell us your story and all the good things that go with that. Why are you, why do you do what you do? Why is your passion this? Yeah. So, um, it's sort of by happenstance that I'm in the, the pregnancy and um, also the gestational diabetes space. Um, but it almost feels like all the things in my career as a dietitian have sort of led me to this point. So I've been involved in some way, shape or form in, in the prenatal nutrition field for my, the entirety of my career as a dietitian. So I've seen it from many different angles. I've seen it from the public policy angle with the state of California's Uh, diabetes and pregnancy program. I've seen it from the clinical practice uh, angle. So I used to work um, under an OBGYN perinatologist, primarily doing um, nutrition for high-risk pregnancies, especially gestational diabetes, but all sorts of other complications to my own clinical practice, to consulting for research studies, um, and now to, you know, having written two books on the topic. And Really, all all of those experiences have given me a, I guess, a, a well-rounded look into, yeah. you know, why are guidelines for pregnancy, nutrition, and gestational diabetes are what they are? Uh, 
what evidence are they based on? How solid is that evidence or not? Where are the gaps in the guidelines that research is telling us maybe we should revisit certain recommendations? Um, and also, how does it work in real life? Um, for example, when I worked in clinical practice, I was really surprised, just to give one example, that the gestational diabetes guidelines actually worked really poorly in practice, where a lot of my clients' blood sugar readings would not improve or many times actually get worse following conventional advice. And that was, you know, I'd always been somebody who's uh, been sort of like not viewing our guidelines through rose-colored glasses, meaning I always, you know, was able to see that, mm, huh, not everyone agrees on all this, and I wonder why the guidelines are what they are. But then when you see it in real life and you see people's, you know, pregnancies actually being harmed, I, I will say that, by poor guidelines, um, that really makes you start to dig. Um, so, you know, my first book, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, I wrote because I was just really tired of having client after client go to a gestational diabetes class at their hospital or whatever and get terrible advice. I mean, just terrible, but the opposite of what actually gives you good blood sugar control. The opposite of what actually provides your baby with the micronutrients that they need to grow and develop. I mean, it was just mind numbing to me. Um, so I wrote that book, you know, heavily cited, just like my other book, Real Food for Pregnancy, to get the word out, you know, on a broader scale, like you can't help everybody in one-on-one -on -one practice. Um, and after that, you know, people started asking me to, you know, what's your recommendation on a general pregnancy nutrition book? And I was like, well, I don't, I mean, I don't really have one because there, there's no good ones on the market, I'm sorry to say. So follow the gestational diabetes one. It's like the same stuff, right? Um, but finally, I did write Real Food for Pregnancy, which then turned into a much larger, <laughs> larger, <laughs> longer, more research-heavy book than I ever imagined. But, um, you know, I had gone through my first pregnancy and had, again, come up against a lot of questions like, why is that recommendation what it is? Does the evidence actually support that? And so that's how, you know, Real Food for Pregnancy uh, came to be. I love it. <laughs> um, we were interested on when you say like real food, like just what, did, why did you name it that? What does that mean for you? Yeah. So, you know, a lot of our, a lot of the way that conventional nutrition views nutrition is, is through the lens of this nutrient does X, Y, Z, and therefore we need to make sure we get enough of this nutrient and blah, blah, blah. But this nutrient does this other thing that's bad. And so you can't eat that. So reduce your intake of all the foods that have that. And sometimes that results in you missing out on a lot of these other nutrients that do really good things. And therefore we end up in this place where we're fortifying foods that don't naturally come with certain nutrients to include those like calcium fortified orange juice, like oranges don't have a lot of calcium, but we throw calcium in there. Um, like adding, you know, folic acid and iron and other nutrients into refined flour, because according to our guidelines, you can have, you know, half of your grains whole, and then the other half can just be refined white flour. But don't worry, we fortify them with a handful of nutrients that supposedly make up for what is missing. 
Um, so when I talk about real food, I'm talking about the, the goal of obtaining the majority of your nutrients from unprocessed food sources. So things that have not had parts of their whole taken out and either left as is or like fortified with synthetic nutrients because we as much as we try in like i think we have examples of this in every field you can't outsmart mother nature you can try really hard and we fail time and time and time again just like you know folic acid is not the same as the folate found in real food and ferrous fumarate or ferrous sulfate as a source of iron is very poorly absorbed and has a lot of side effects compared to the heme iron that you would be getting from meat and other animal foods. Um, so when I'm talking about real food, I'm talking about unprocessed foods. And that isn't just like the refined white flour versus whole grain flour. It also is eating foods in their, in the entirety of how they come in mother nature. So for example, if you consume dairy, dairy products come with milk, or sorry, dairy products come with fat. Um, <laughs> So if you're eating low fat dairy, you are missing out on some of the nutrients that are meant to be in those dairy products. If you are eating only egg whites because of the nutritionism that you've been programmed that cholesterol is bad for you, so don't eat the yolks, you are missing out on most of the micronutrients in the egg. If you are eating your chicken and taking off the skin because the skin's bad, it has fat, you are missing out on certain important micronutrients, especially a lot of amino acids that are important for pregnancy um, and many other life phases because you're not eating the skin. I mean, the way that we consumed animal foods was nose to tail. The way we consumed our dairy products was in their whole form, eggs in their whole form. So it goes beyond just like eat you know, fruits and vegetables and make a green smoothie in the morning. You know, it's, it's more about getting your food in its whole unprocessed form and eating like your great, 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 great grandmother ate um, versus some like fad that people are calling real food. Yeah. Which I was like, I'm so grateful that we actually are talking about this because I can't tell you how many times everybody on the podcast knows, but if you don't, I'm a pelvic health physical therapist who treats pregnant and postpartum women and nutrition is a hundred percent part of that for me as well. But I always send out yes. for recommendations for dietitians and I recommend Lily's book all the time because again, like these are the little things that we're not considering and I can't tell you, and I'm sure Lily, you hear this even more than I do, but people will come in and I'm like, okay, well, what type of diet do you have? Or how do you eat at home? And they'll tell me I'm a clean eater. Or I'm a raw eater. And I'm like, oh, okay, well define to me or explain to me what that means. And it's a lot of the things that you just touched on. Like I'm eating a lot of low fats. I'm doing egg whites instead of eating the egg or taking like skins off low fat, low carb, all of that. So this is super, super important. Um, which leads me really into kind of that next, this could be a loaded topic, by the way. So Lily, you take this where you want to go, because like a lot of our questions are kind of, I'm giving you freedom because we want to hear your expertise on this, but what are some of your favorite or the top foods, someone who is currently pregnant, what are some of those top foods that you would recommend they consider? And I know that this may or may not like depend on symptoms and all of that good stuff. Of course, that's part of it. But if you had to give a few for maybe each trimester, what would you recommend? So first of all, how I like to approach prenatal nutrition is I like to lead with 
micronutrients first. The way that our guidelines typically do is they lead with the macronutrients. So fat, carbohydrates, and protein, you should eat X percentage of your calories coming from these three macronutrients, and therefore you should eat X, Y, Z. Um, there's really very poor evidence base for that approach, by the way, but that's the way that it's done. I like to look at, okay, we know that you need more vitamin B12 in pregnancy. You need more vitamin A. You need more DHA. You need more choline. You need more iron, more iodine, whatever. And then look at where do we find those nutrients in whole foods? Let's build a diet around that. Let the macros fall where they will. Um, but let's build a diet around that. So maybe we can aim to get as much of your nutrition through food as possible understanding that supplementation has its place. However, the nutrients found in food are A, better absorbed because they're in forms that your body can recognize, and B, they come in synergy with a bunch of different nutrients, somehow built into this perfect package that your body knows what to do with. So for example, the DHA and choline, which are both vital for brain development, it just so happens that some of the richest sources of DHA have choline packaged with it. And it just so happens that the choline helps to escort DHA into your baby's brain for optimal brain development. Hmm. You know, so that's how I like to approach it, first of all. Um, so examples of foods that I am, you know, really a fan of is whole eggs. So eggs with the yolks. And again, I, I take this from a micronutrient perspective, although the macros and eggs being primarily protein is also wonderful because you need more protein when you're pregnant. Um, but one of the major um, micronutrients that's in eggs that's so important is choline, which is a B vitamin-like compound that is vital for prevention of neural tube defects, for promoting normal brain development, uh, for helping with placental function, so better, you know, blood flow and nutrient supply um, to your baby and less risk of some of these pregnancy complications such as preeclampsia. And everything I'm saying, by the way, like I can pinpoint the study or group of studies that are supportive of these statements. I'm not just like pulling this stuff out of thin air. Um, so there's a lot of stuff going on in eggs, but choline is is the number one reason to consume them. They are generally the number one source of choline in a person's diet. People who don't consume eggs consume about half the choline of people who do consume eggs. And for pregnant women in particular, at least 90% are not getting enough choline. And we have data showing that we actually might need more than double the amount of choline that our current recommendations are set at. So eggs are just fantastic. They're a pretty easy sell. They're pretty versatile. They can be mixed into dishes. You can do, you know, eggs in quiche or eggs in different baked goods or baked custards or puddings. You know, there's always ways to um, figure out a way to fit in eggs, even if you're not a person who likes to, you know, wake up to two fried eggs in the morning or something. Um, so those are first and foremost, like an easy sell. They're very accessible, pretty inexpensive, relatively speaking. Uh, and then I guess another food would be I mean, I can pick from a bunch, but I'll, I'll go with one that would be uh, relevant to pelvic floor PT. And that would be um, going back to the, you know, skin on chicken, um, skin on bone in tough 
cuts of meat um, or even bone broth are all going, going to be your richest sources of collagen in the diet. And it turns out that um, collagen is, first of all, it's a, a protein that makes up a third of, your, of the protein in your body. And it's vital to your hair, skin, nails, joints, connective tissue, bones, the health of all of that. But also, uh, you know, those, all of those tissues, like your whole body is undergoing dramatic changes during pregnancy. Your belly stretches like beyond comprehension. Uh, many joints and ligaments are affected um, in, to allow all of this, you know, all of these changes to happen, but to also prepare yourself for birth. And then of course, recovery um, postpartum. You need a good amount of collagen to keep your pelvic floor strong um, and also supple, able to like yield to birth to this, you know, just crazy large thing passing through your vagina, which doesn't seem like it should fit, but somehow it does. Like, why are we built this way? I don't know. But you need collagen to allow those tissues to stretch without um, damage or if they are damaged to repair properly post-birth. You also need the collagen for your uterus to grow. So at uh, term, the uterus has 800% more collagen than it does pre-pregnancy. I mean, the organ is the size of a watermelon now when it used to be the size of a pear. You have um, all this, you know, you're also growing a whole brand new human being whose body is also one third collagen, right? So you need it for their growing bone, skin, connective tissue, internal organs, vasculature, etc. Um, it's part of, you know, some of the amino acids in collagen are important just on like the molecular level of the transcription of fetal DNA. Like you need it so their DNA is transcribed properly. And yet this is mentioned nowhere in the guidelines. So it's up to you to sort of take note of what all of these traditional cultures have recommended for millennia to consume your animal foods nose to tail so that you were incorporating a source of collagen into your diet. Now it's beyond that because animal foods don't just have the collagen, but I'm highlighting the collagen rich foods. And this is one of the very important reasons to consume at least some of them in your diet. Of course, you're also getting iron, vitamin B12, vitamin B6, and a whole slew of other nutrients in um, animal foods as well that are really important to, uh, to a healthy pregnancy and a smooth recovery postpartum. I should probably stop there because I know you have Ooh. more questions and I've covered two foods. <laughs> I just took like 16 um, post-it notes all over my desk because I don't like everybody listening like that is gold and I will be 100% transparent as well because I tell my clients during pregnancy how important collagen is but I really didn't know specifically like foods to recommend and things I always recommend they talk to a dietitian for obvious reasons but um, I think like I think it's really cool that you broke that down and I really appreciate that you did about the uterus stretching and the importance of the collagen and that it being a third of your body. And um, this question, actually, I didn't ask you this before, but I would love to know if you can touch on, because I don't know about you, but I see a lot of culture now doing collagen supplements or the powders and things like that all the time, the collagen peptides. Is that something, do you feel like some bodies can't absorb collagen as well? Or is it more so they're just not taking in the right amount of the collagen-rich foods? And that might be an opinionated question, people, I'm not sure. But. Yeah, I think most people are just not consuming much collagen-rich foods because, I mean, think of the way that we purchase meat 
right? Most people are buying like boneless, skinless chicken breasts, boneless, skinless chicken thighs, um, lean steak. Uh, they're, they're choosing cuts of meat that are more tender and have been like separated from the whole of the animal. So for example, if you wanted to get more collagen in, you could do bone in, skin on chicken breasts or chicken thighs. Even better, roast a whole chicken, let the skin get crispy, eat the delicious crispy skin, because that is super rich in collagen, and then all the stuff that's left over from your roast chicken that like you don't think is edible, like maybe it's like a tough thing or like the ends of the bones that are all collagenous and weird and, or if, hey, the skin doesn't taste good to you, fine, whatever, like set it all aside, put it in a pot, make bone broth. And it'll be a, the most delicious soup you've ever had. And you're like, oh my God, this is just like grandma made. Um, you're ending food waste. You're not buying a thing of bone broth from the store, which sell for like $10 a pint or something absurdly expensive. I mean, this is like, this is like grandma food made out of food scraps. It doesn't make sense to purchase it, in my opinion. Um, but then, you know, just purchase, purchasing and cooking an animal, like, in its more whole form, you're going to get a different array of nutrients than if you were only doing the lean, boneless, skinless, tendonless, non-tough cuts of meat. Another example would be like, um, you know, pork chops versus doing like a pork shoulder. And a pork shoulder is kind of tough. I mean, you can't like slice that thin and throw it on a grill and eat it like a steak. No, that's gross because it has all these all of this connective tissue in it. But when you slow cook or braise or, you know, make into soup, um, these tough cuts of meat, all that collagen sort of breaks down and makes this delicious, rich, flavorful stock. And then you also get to benefit from that as well. So pulled pork made with pork shoulder, which arguably like, I mean, everybody loves pulled pork. It's delicious. Gives you significantly more collagen than something like a pork chop, simply because it's a cut of meat that has a lot of connective tissue in it to begin with. Um, as far as the supplements, though, I, I'm, I'm not opposed to collagen supplements. I mean, they've actually become very popular in the market, and that's in part to the, the changes in all sorts of industries. So for example, like a lot of people are not purchasing leather products anymore. And so what you know, when farmers used to sell their hides from their cows to the leather manufacturers, now there's like the leather market is way down. And so instead they sell those hides to collagen manufacturers who essentially boil them down and then, you know, dehydrate and, and extract the, you know, the collagen out of it and, and turn it into a powder and sell it to you that way. Um, that's really how most of the collagen supplements on the market are made are from, from cowhide. Um, I will say that you're not getting like, there's different types of collagen and different, different tissues in your body. Like the collagen that's in your skin is a little bit different than the collagen that's in your connective tissue. Um, that like, you know, your tendons and whatever that connect your, your bones together and, and all sorts of stuff. So technically you're getting a little bit different of a mix. If you're only doing collagen supplements as your only source of collagen in your diet. Um, how important is that or not? I really can't say because there are not studies on it. Um, 
to date. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of like, it's kind of a guessing game. We haven't really been in this situation in human history until really like the last hundred years, truly, right? Because most cultures were including a significant portion of animal foods. I mean, a hundred years ago, go back to 1920, we were buying animals, you know, direct from farmers at our local butcher. You were encouraged to use all parts of the animal. You know, yep. there was that huge push for you, especially in the Great Depression, to like make use of organ meats. And so it was just a different time. We're in a really weird era, in my opinion, where everyone is super disconnected from their food. They don't know where things come from. They don't know how to cook different cuts of meat. They only know how to take a chicken breast and throw it in a nonstick skillet with no fat and no salt and like pretend that it tastes good. I mean, we're just in like <laughs> sort of culinary travesty <laughs> era. Um, so yeah, I don't know what we do with yeah. that. <laughs> Keep talking about real food and get people to it's a yeah. It's a mission that we have to keep doing and, and we've got to get people to understand like the importance of it. But it's funny that you say that about the organ meat. My grandfather was a butcher. And so I was a ballet dancer. So I grew up eating the way that you're talking. And it's really funny because yes. when I went to college, I changed it because I thought yes. that I was the one that was weird and like not doing it right. And then I was getting all the false beliefs about everything. And so I literally just updated my Instacart, by the way, to get me some full chickens. Thank you for that. <laughs> there you go. Wow. Multitasking. <laughs> Absolutely. <I have> some <laughs> We're good. <laughs> yeah. Um, I had a patient ask me this the other day and I thought it was a great question to ask you when we have our moms coming in. Well, they're not quite moms yet, but they know they want to plan to get pregnant. Like nutrition wise, is there anything in particular, any advice you would give somebody in that boat who's not pregnant yet, but they really want to prep their body? Yeah. So I've started using the uh, hashtag on social media, real food is real food, because mm -hmm. I think people get, um, really attached to this idea that they need to do something super special above and beyond be on some plan there must be some food that it will you know guarantee i get pregnant or actually back to your earlier question that i i didn't address like what do you eat trimester by trimester right um there is no one food that's going to magically do anything for you. I'm going to put it that way. It's the totality of what you're eating and the array of micronutrients and how that supports your overall hormonal health and keeping inflammation levels down in your body and supporting your mental health and supporting your weight at a healthy level, etc. That all works in tandem to support your overall health, which supports your overall fertility or the overall healthy trajectory of your pregnancy. So it's really the same advice. I mean, that's hard for people to like to hear, but it's really the same advice. And arguably preconception might be even more important than what you do during pregnancy. So a lot of people have this idea like, oh, when, I'm get, when I get pregnant, I'm going to eat so healthy. I mean, I did that to myself, both pregnancies, and I should know better. But first trimester, almost everybody gets hit with some degree of nausea and food aversions. There's 
your senses are heightened, things smell weird. It's just a very strange place to be in. And it really helps to have this, be able to sort of fall back on good nutrition preconception where you're like, okay, well, at least I have built up decent nutrient stores. Um, But even more so than that, the your egg quality and also your partner's sperm quality is impacted by what you eat. And that goes back at least three months preconception. You can actually influence the quality of the egg that's going to be ovulated and ultimately be fertilized and ultimately grow into a baby. So if you can go back at least a few months before you're, you're ready to try to conceive, um, or really as, as early as you can, but that's sort of like a, a minimum window. If you have the luxury of planning a pregnancy, it is absolutely in your best interest to work on good nutrition, good lifestyle habits, like sleep hygiene, getting to sleep early, um, so your circadian rhythms and thus your hormone balance is on point. Um, and that really sets the stage for a healthy pregnancy. So all the same things apply, right? So like the choline we're talking about, both choline and folate and actually a number of different B vitamins and one of the amino acids, glycine, that's found in high amounts in collagen. Those things all work in tandem, for example, to prevent neural tube defects. And that's a a very important thing that you want to um, prevent. And that actually, the neural tube closes by 12 weeks of gestation. And that could be, you know, just after you find out that you're pregnant, right? Like you usually find out at, if you're on point and like, know you want to get pregnant, the earliest you find out is week four, because that's how pregnancies are dated from your last menstrual period. You ovulate approximately, although it varies around two weeks in. So when you test, you're technically four weeks pregnant, right? So you, you don't have a whole lot of time to intervene and like supercharge your diet. Moreover, when food aversions and nausea and things are kicking in, that's really not going to be the time where you're going to feel really strongly pulled to consume liver or where you're going to all of a sudden, you know, go to the meat counter and be like, I'm going to buy bones for the first time and make bone broth. Like, unless it's a habit, those things are really going to gross you out and you're probably not going to do it. Um, So definitely preconception would be the time to really think, you know, critically about where, you know, you're getting your micronutrients. Are you consuming green leafy vegetables? Are you consuming um, fish and seafood products for that important DHA and choline and iodine and all those other nutrients? Um, It's really preconception that you ideally want to start those habits. And then once the food aversion nausea phase passes, which it usually for most people passes or at least lessens at some point in pregnancy, it's easier to return back to those habits that you have previously established. It's, it's pretty hard to switch your eating entirely and only in pregnancy. You know, it's, it's just, it's wishful thinking, but it doesn't really usually pan out that way. Sure. Yeah, I love the point that you made too about um, not just your hashtag, like real food is real food, but making the point of it doesn't change a whole lot with preconception and pregnancy. Like we still need to be eating and consuming those real foods. And I would go um, as far as to assume that that would be the same for postpartum recovery, right? Because I know people ask me all the time, like, what what can I do for a quicker recovery food-wise? And I'm like, well, you should be doing that already. (laughs) Yes. Um, 
Yeah. yeah. So I don't know if you have anything to touch on that as far as postpartum recovery, because Madeline and I both treat women from preconception, conception, prenatal and postpartum. And so our audience yeah. is full of those women. Yeah. So, um, you know, interesting factoid. So I started writing Real Food for Pregnancy at 10 months postpartum with my first. And so I was still very much in the midst of postpartum recovery. I mean, it's not like, yeah, you'd go through most of your major recovery in the first six or eight weeks or so, but like postpartum recovery is a long process. I'm about nine months out with my second. And, you know, although this recovery I think was much easier because I was, you know, knew what to prepare for and had different expectations, you're also still recovering. Like the, the constant care for a baby is still a lot of work at nine months, right? <laughs> Not to yeah. like scare anybody who's heading into, <laughs> into a, a baby land. But what I would say, so, you know, there's a whole chapter on postpartum recovery in Real Food for Pregnancy. I like snuck it in there because no one's going to pick up a book on postpartum. I know I didn't with my first and it would have been great to have that information. Um, so you have realistic expectations, sort of understand some of the timelines, but also can be intentional about preparing for how are you going to rest, recover, and receive support. Receive support being one of the most important parts of it that every traditional culture has built into the way that they care for mothers, but we're like totally separate from that in the West, unfortunately. Uh, But a lot of the same, you know, food rules sort of apply. Um, You certainly want to be thinking, you know, there's a lot of tissues that need to heal, right? So that uterus that's shrinking down, your belly, skin, a whole abdominal cavity that was stretched needs to like shrink back down. I mean, it's going to take some time, but like those tissues have been stretched like crazy, Um, all these connective tissues have been stretched. There's probably either your perineum stretched like crazy, or maybe it stretched like crazy and tore, or there was an episiotomy, or maybe there was um, a C-section. There's probably some sort of tissue or even a wound that needs significant healing. And those are collagen-rich tissues. So I always point that out. But also for general wound healing, you need vitamin A, you need vitamin C, you need zinc. You lost blood during delivery. Everybody loses blood during delivery, even the most perfect, unencumbered natural births. Even if it's not postpartum hemorrhage, you lose blood when you have a baby. And so you need to eat eating foods that replenish your blood. So anemia is very, very common postpartum, very underscreened for, unfortunately. Um, So you need iron-rich foods, B12-rich foods, vitamin A-rich foods. You'll notice there's a lot of overlap on these, right? Because all of those foods tend to be your high-protein, high-collagen animal foods. You also have burned a significant amount of energy uh, during either during labor or during labor plus your abdominal surgery, or even a planned C-section, you still are recovering from major abdominal surgery. There's just a huge recovery. um, And that requires a lot of energy, a lot of protein um, to, to get that, to, to just get you back to not even square one, but like (laughs) almost up to square one. So you're going to be really, really hungry um, for quite some time postpartum. I mean, it depends person to person, but Usually the first couple of weeks, first month, people are eating a lot. If you might out eat your 
your spouse or your husband. That's not unusual. Um, now you're making breast milk too. Um, whether you continue choose to continue to nurse or to wean early, that also takes up a lot of energy, right? So I, I just like to set people up for the expectation that um, yes, you want to still be focusing on micronutrient-rich foods for your recovery, for replenishing nutrient stores that have been preferentially going to baby, for establishing or maintaining breastfeeding and the, the nutrient levels in your breast milk, because those do vary for certain nutrients, depending on what you eat. There's just a lot of considerations for postpartum, but you don't need to turn it into like a, a scary, scary, like, oh no, I have to do all these things. I think it's more about figuring out, you know, which foods you want to emphasize postpartum, which arguably are the same ones you want to emphasize in pregnancy mm -hmm. and how you are going to get those foods to you and in your mouth, because you're not necessarily going to be in a place where you can be cooking. And that's where the receiving support part comes in. So if you're not able to receive support from people like a meal train or a family member coming to cook for you or postpartum doula or food delivery, whatever, then you want to be doing pre-prep work by preparing freezer meals and, and whatnot. So that's easy for somebody else to heat up for you. So I do have, in addition to the chapter in um, Real Food for Pregnancy, I have a really lengthy, detailed blog post. Um, I think it's called like Real Food Postpartum Recovery or something. And it links out to 50 plus recipes to give you, um, they're not all my recipes, but some of them are. Um, to give you some ideas for what things to meal plan for, or even recipes to give to a loved one. If you're like, I want you to make X, Y, Z meal for me. It, it really helps postpartum when you're not in a brain space to be um, delegating things. People are always like, how can I help? It's like, I don't have the brain power to delegate right now. Like it helps to have pre-planned like, these are three meals that I like. Here's the recipe. <laughs> Do that while you're pregnant. Give it to the person. Or, you know, there's websites where people can set up a meal train for you and um, sign up for a day to bring you a meal. These are all things that are so, so helpful postpartum. Like it's just you need your basic, basic needs met. So you can just lay in bed or lay on the couch with a, you know, a nursing baby and not have to worry about what's the next thing you're going to eat. That's great advice. I love it. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, I wanted to know, cause you talked a little bit about, um, why I guess I like, what is, you don't have to go too far into it, but some of like the pregnancy food myths, like maybe like one that you're just like, like I can't like and educate on there. Yeah. Um, so there's so many, but I would say yeah. one of the major ones that um, I find frustrating is that the, usually the first thing that you think when you're pregnant is what can't I eat? You notice that like what foods do I need to avoid all of a sudden? Cause I'm pregnant and I know there's foods that are now unsafe Nobody's asking what you should eat more of. Everybody's worried about what you shouldn't eat. And when you look at those lists, they are usually from a standpoint of food safety. And you are indeed at higher risk of contracting a foodborne illness or getting sick from something like, you know, salmonella um, when you're pregnant because your immune system does adapt so that you can grow a baby and carry it to term. This is a very real thing. 
However, the relative risk of getting sick for a lot of the foods that are on those lists is so slim to none that it's kind of absurd that some things make it on the list and then other things aren't included on the list. So for example, eggs with runny yolks. Um, that's on the list. You can't do the runny yolks, can't do undercooked eggs, can't do like undercooked anything they say. Um, but when you look at the chances that an egg even contains salmonella, not even the likelihood you'll actually get sick from it, but just that it contains salmonella is anywhere from one in 12,000 to one in 30,000 eggs. It's very, very slim to none that you're gonna even encounter one egg in your entire pregnancy that will have salmonella bacteria on it or in it. And that makes a lot of people just think that they can't eat eggs whatsoever. Or maybe it's a person who only likes their eggs over easy or over medium where the yolk is still a little runny and therefore now they're not going to consume eggs whatsoever. So what is the fallout of that? The fallout of that is almost guaranteed choline deficiency, which is almost guaranteed some process of brain development not going optimally. I'll try to put it as like kindly as I can. Um, whereas, in the US anyways, and this varies depending on the country you're in, which is always interesting whenever I survey my audience and like what foods are they told to avoid. It's so different country to country, which is just fascinating. You're really encouraged to eat your fruits and vegetables. So 2% of foodborne illness outbreaks in the US are due to eggs. 46% of foodborne illness outbreaks in the US are due to raw fruits and vegetables, mostly raw fruit, especially the pre-cut fruit, or leafy greens. Everyone is eating their spinach salads. They're making their smoothies with raw greens, right? You're more likely to get some sort of awful foodborne illness from your salad or your pre-cut watermelon than you are eggs. But nowhere on the list does it say anything about raw fruits and vegetables. So I think we need just a greater conversation about what is the actual risk benefit of these foods? I'm not telling you that like go eat a whole bunch of raw eggs or like every single egg you encounter is going to be safe. I'm just saying there is no food that's guaranteed safe or unsafe. Um, and everything is a trade-off and you have to understand, you know, basic food safety and hygiene. You have to understand if you're going to choose not to consume a certain food because it gives you anxiety over food poisoning, what is the trade-off of not consuming that food nutritionally? Because sometimes there, there is indeed a risk and sometimes it's something like, you know, deli meat. Is it really like, are you really going to miss out on some nutrients if you don't eat deli meat? I mean, if you include other animal foods in your diet, no. If ham is like the only source of animal protein in your diet, then like, yeah, that might be a significant contributor to your iron and zinc and B12 intake. I don't know. Um, but that's less of a food that I'm concerned about people omitting than something like eggs, right? So I just think we need to, you know, have a more nuanced conversation. And I like to play devil's advocate because nobody else seems to do it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs>
Yeah, I feel like we do that a lot on this podcast too, just kind of breaking down the stigmas. And that's why we request those of you out there that are doing the same thing to come on so that we have you as that resource, uh, which leads me into kind of wrapping this whole thing up. We, what, a, what a powerful episode this has already been. Um, but tell the people, how can they find you? How can they connect you like with you? What are the best ways for them to kind of get resources and things like that? And we will have, by the way, your handles and everything like that in the show notes, but is there one that you particularly prefer? Yep. So um, my website would be a great place to find my work. So lilynicholsrdn.com. I have over like 250 plus blog posts on there. So, you know, you can, you can search for whatever topics. And if I haven't written a blog post about it, it's almost certainly covered in my book. (laughs) So you can uh, download the first chapter of Real Food for Pregnancy for free on that site as well. I mean, that's linked right at the top of the site and under almost every blog post. It's on the freebies page. There's a bunch of other freebies that you can take a look at. Um, You can get both my books, Real Food for Pregnancy and Real Food for Gestational Diabetes on Amazon. You can find me on social media. I'm mostly posting on Instagram these days uh, versus other platforms, but I'm on the other ones as well. And my name is the same as my website. So it's at Lily Nichols RDN. Perfect. 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 I'm so excited. We will put all of those there in the show notes as well, just so everyone has access to that. Because this is the information, and I follow you on Instagram, of course, and this is the information that I think is lacking, right? Like a lot of the information that we go over in pelvic PT and in chiropractic as well, and then also nutrition, like these are the, this is where the support needs to be for our women and helping them understand what real food is and understand how to prepare it even. And like, cause the unfortunate thing for me, I, in a group of friends of mine, when I was in college, I was the only one that knew how to cook. And I thought that was mind blowing. I was like, what is this world? Cause I love to cook and I've always loved to cook because my grandparents taught me and my parents taught me. Yes. But the way that we live now, it is so crazy. And so I think that that's really important and your work is so valuable. And I really appreciate what you do for the community and, and the amount of resources that you have. And like I said, I send people to you all the time. So I'm just really grateful for that. Um, but this was an amazing and a super powerful episode. And I, we're just so grateful that you are here. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so happy to do it. Yeah. I agree with you. I think cooking is, is a life skill and it is just so sad (laughs) that so many people never learned. Um, So, you know, it's something that you can learn yourself. I'm certainly more into cooking. One of my grandmas was a great cook. One of my grandmas was like shake and bake chicken, just, you know, went with all of the convenience foods of what, like the 1950s or whatever. Um, And so you can, you can intervene in a later generation and regain those traditional cooking skills. It's not too late. You just have to, like I say, roll up your grandma sleeves and just get in there. Just get in the kitchen. It's not that scary. It's not that hard. Pick up some vintage cookbooks. It's, Mm -hmm. it's amazing what you can do with like salt, pepper, and like Mm -hmm. rosemary or oregano or something like you don't need fancy recipes. It can really be pretty simple and honestly, pretty lazy. Yeah. Slow crock pot kind of meals are so delicious and so easy. So yeah, I love Get in that. the kitchen, everyone. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Thank you so much. And until next time, guys, this was another amazing episode of Vaginas and Vertebrae, and we'll see you next week.